Welcome to Money in the Mind. Join Andy, a mental health therapist, and Aaron, an accountant, as they explore personal finance, psychology, and provide resources to help on your financial journey. Okay, hello everyone and welcome to Money in the Mind. I'm Aaron, joined by my friend Andy as always. And today we have a a guest who I'm very excited about. His name is Dave Hoppen. And if any of you are locals, Omaha or Nebraska or the area, you might know Dave Hoppen. And if you are not native to Nebraska or familiar, um, Dave is a special guest who played basketball for the Nebraska Cornhuskers in the 80s and then went on to play in the NBA for a while and now is basically a financial advisor, investment manager here in Omaha. So we're really excited to have Dave on today. And uh, yeah, Dave Hoppin, thank you for joining us. Oh, glad to be here. Thanks for thanks for asking me to come on. Sure. Oh, so, Aaron, uh, Aaron has been saying your name for easily over a year. No joke. This guy <laughs> right here has been like, I just, I really just want to get Dave on. I was thinking about Dave, like he'd be such a good guest. And I was like, well then ask him. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm going to ask him next time. A year later. Okay. I finally got Dave on the podcast. <laughs> so this is, this is a long time coming. I've been excited about it. I didn't even know who you were. And I'm like, I sure hope it, I sure hope it is as good as you hope it is. So I don't know. Oh, it's going to be, you really built it up a lot. I don't know. <laughs> it's going to be fantastic. Yeah. Well, to get started, Dave, we do have a plenty of listeners that are not from Nebraska. I even I, I haven't checked for a while, but we ha- even have some international folks. So if you want to give just a just the basic kind of background of, you know, some of your experience or who you are and what you're interested in and anything else. Okay. Uh, well, as you said, I'm uh, born and raised here in Omaha. Uh, went to high school here at Benson High School. Went down to Nebraska. Uh, played four years there. Um, when I left there, well, and I still am the all-time leading scorer there. That was in 1986, so a long time ago. I uh, actually injured myself my senior year. Uh, 20 games into my senior year, I tore my ACL and um, didn't really think I was going to get drafted, uh, but still got drafted in the third round by the Atlanta Hawks. Never really played with the Hawks. And anyway, I I ended up playing a year with uh, the Golden State Warriors, uh, three years with the Charlotte Hornets, and uh, two years with the Philadelphia 76ers. So, Boy, real quick, what years did you play with the Charlotte Hornets? Hmm. The first three years of the franchise. So it would have probably been 88, 89 and 90. Oh, that was before that, that was before the Muggsy Bogues time. No, no, there. no, no, no. He was there. Oh, yeah. Oh, he was my. Oh, when I was a kid, I knew nothing about NBA, but I loved Muggsy Bogues because I was always the <laughs> little guy and I liked playing basketball. He gave me a whole inspiration and then seeing him on Space Jam. I assume you turned down that role in Space Jam, right? I did, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know, the crazy thing is, is that I played with Muggsy, who was the shortest guy to ever play in the NBA. He was at five three, I think, and I also played with Manu Bowl, who was seven foot seven. And at the time, I think there's been one other guy, maybe George Mirazon or something, who was actually taller. So I played with the tallest and shortest guy. And, when when we were in Charlotte, Muggsy was like a, a freak of nature. He would like 
you know, we'd have a game at seven o'clock and he would show up in the locker room at like six o'clock with a bag of McDonald's. He had a Big Mac and fries and, uh, a, and a Coke and he'd have a Snickers and eat that in the locker room and then go out and play, you know, for 40 minutes in the game or whatever and not be bothered by it or anything. It just, it was weird. I would have to be eat four or five hours ahead of time and let your stomach settle and everything. And he was just like, Directly eating as he's walking out onto the court. So good dude. Uh, so professional athletes, unlike most people in more ways than one, but <laughs> yeah. 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 Wow. Well, that's all I needed. I got a Muggsy Bogues fix. So <laughs> <laughs> that's the coolest thing ever. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, and, and Dave, for our, for our listeners benefit, how tall are you? I'm six eleven. Shoes. Six eleven. So yeah. yeah, so so Manute at seven foot seven. I mean, you know, six eleven. I'll be the tallest person. Pretty much anybody I meet will know. And then Manute was another eight inches taller than I was. I mean, that's that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. It's it's hard to imagine. I you know I've I've been in the same room with you a number of times. And yeah, full disclosure, Dave helps manage the investments for the school I work for for our our foundation that for a lot of scholarship money and such um, that people give to us, we invest it. And your firm does manage our investments. I don't benefit at all from that personally, but that's, that's my connection here. So, so I'm sure we'll get to talk about that. Cause I, that's a, that's an interesting connection as well. Okay. So, so I, think, I derailed that. I apologize. Oh you no, said, you, no. You said, I, I heard Charlotte Hornets and I was like, Oh, oh my goodness. Hold on. <laughs> so um, so then you ended your career with the 76ers then? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. So go on, go on. Then what? Uh, then I uh, moved back to Omaha and my whole thought process when I was uh, playing was I knew another guy that, uh, that I played with that had opened up uh, a couple of McDonald's franchises. And I wasn't a real big fan of McDonald's, but I did like Dairy Queen. So I wanted to open up a Dairy Queen franchise. And so called up, had a few meetings with them. And it was uh, a lot more expensive than I thought and a lot more restricted. I mean, they are really control everything you do with where, where you can put your place, what kind of you know deals you can offer, all the stuff. And I was just like, I don't really know that I want to be totally confined in on what, what I'm going to be doing for the next few years. And then I talked to somebody else and they said, don't do that because you're going to be working with teenage kids all the time and they're not going to show up and they're going to, you know, get in fights and do this and do that. And it's just not, not worth it, you know? So didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, and a friend of mine from my church, uh, Dale Engsko came up and said, Hey, I'm in the insurance business right now. I'm kind of getting tired of it. He had been doing it for about 12 years. I'd like to try something new. I want to try uh, this independent investment advisor and um, asked me if I'd be interested in it. And I didn't really hardly know Dale very well. So I took some classes and got some accreditation and thought, yeah, let's do this. We were probably too, (laughs) we were too naive to know what we were doing. And uh, yeah, so in 1996, we opened up a shop with no clients and no, uh, no computer, no nothing back then and opened up and so 26 years later here, we're still, we're still rolling and, and doing well. So we've been blessed. Very so. good. And, and, and I, I met Dale as well. And he moved on to work somewhere, somewhere in Minnesota, but he's about 6'10 or so. So you two are. <laughs> he's 6'8. He's so yeah. 6'8. Okay. I'm 6'11. So yeah. 
We originally kind of thought we might call it the Twin Towers Financial Services, but we didn't do that. So hey, that that would not have aged well. So. <laughs> <laughs> My new partner is only about six foot, so he's a, he's a little guy. <laughs> A little guy, still taller than Ron and I, but all right. <laughs> so, what was it? What was your experience like in the NBA? What was it like playing and and having those games? And you know, I, I guess maybe being on TV or you know having you know. Uh, I mean, I, we'll get maybe if, if you don't mind, we'll get maybe in more of the financial areas as we go on. But I, we, I mean, this is the this is the first NBA player we've ever had on Money in the Mind, so this is exciting. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, I would love to say it was fantastic all the time and stuff, and it really wasn't all the time. You know, it's so, you know, in high school, I was a very good player and was like the star or whatever. Then in college, I was very good and, and you know, and, and was one of the best players on the team and blah, blah, blah. Well, when I got to the NBA, I wasn't one of the best players. I, I actually started for the two years I was in Charlotte, and I, and I started some uh, when I was at Golden State but I never did start when I was in uh, Philadelphia, but very difficult to go out every night and uh, know that at best I was maybe okay, you know, on the same level as the guy I was playing against. But most of the time, the guys I was playing against were better than I was. I mean, I played against Kareem, even, you know, it was the last couple of years of his career, but it's still Kareem stinking Abdul-Jabbar, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, I played against Hakeem Olajuwon. I played against Patrick Ewing. I mean, this was still an era where, Unlike today, they, they threw the ball inside. They just, just didn't shoot threes every time down the floor, you know. So it, it was tough. It was a lot of pressure. You know, you had 20,000 people watching you live, and then you had millions or whatever watching on TV all the time. So, you know, a lot of travel. Um, you know, we played three or mo a lot of times four games a week. So just a lot of, you know, going, going, going. Every day was the same. There was no you never thought, oh, today is Saturday, you know, or whatever, because it's just another game day or it's another practice day, you know. So uh, during the season, it was just pretty much, you know, you and those 12 guys and three coaches, and um, that was it the whole time, you know. And um, it, it was a lot of fun to it, too. I mean, it was a lot of fun, and the money was obviously great. You know, it was weird back then. We were like the, my, my final year in Philadelphia, they bought a plane, and we're actually flying themselves. But before that, we had flown commercial all the time. So we would get on a plane and we would take the eight first class seats. And then we'd take the two first two rows of the coach area, you know, and it would all be by seniority and stuff. So we were walking through the airport, you know, this NBA team walking through with everybody else, you know, and Minute hated it. And people would come up and want to ask him for autographs. He'd say, get out of here, you stupid Americans and stuff. And although he was the funniest, my best friend in the NBA, but he just was kind of harsh on people. But, you know, Charles was, Charles Barkley was the exact opposite. I mean, Charles is going over and having a beer with people and he's stopping and taking pictures with everybody. So when I played at the Sixers, which was the best of the three teams I played on, there would be people camping out at the hotel every every time they would know what our schedule was and they would be waiting at the back door waiting at the front door all to get you to sign autographs and stuff no matter what time of day or night or whatever so it just kind of gets a little i mean it's it's fun and it's kind of cool but it gets a little old after a while too when you come in at at two in the morning from just playing in detroit and you got to play you know in new york the next night and and there's people waiting there you know and and you got 50 people all wanting an autograph, you know, and so it just gets a little old at times, but it was, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was a great experience. 
What kinds of, yeah, because we like to talk about psychology here. What kinds of things would you do to kind of, to prepare yourself mentally for, for the grind of it, whether before a game or between games? Yeah. Before a game, I usually, you know, after doing all the the warming up and stuff, we usually are out, you know, an hour, hour and a half before the game starts and, and, and going through some drills with some coaches or another player and doing some drills and stuff. Uh, usually though, once I came back in, I usually kind of wanted to go off by myself in the locker room. There were some people that wanted to listen to music, some people that wanted to, you know, walk around getting people fired up and giving high fives and stuff. I kind of like to just kind of be off by myself and kind of thinking about who I was playing against and what we were going to do that night. And, you know, what, what's that guy's favorite move and what's it, you know, what's, what's his tendencies and, and to try to remember, because, you know, you're doing it, you've got a different opponent every other night, you know? So, I mean, it's, it, you have to really kind of focus in when you're doing walkthroughs and stuff during the day of the game, you've got to really focus on, on what's going on or else you're going to, you're going to be lost out there because the other team is, you know, coming in with some really good athletes. And, and then, you know, in between games, I really, and most of the guys did not hang out with each other a whole lot with each other because you're just with each other all the time, you know? So it's like when you come in off of a road trip, you don't necessarily want to say, Hey, why don't you come on over and hang out for another two or three hours? Because I just spent the last two days with you, you know, you kind of want to decompress a little bit and you don't want to, think about basketball all the time, you know, and I was fortunate enough, my, um, my son Daniel was born in Charlotte. So he was a good kind of a respite to be able to come home and, and play with him and stuff and, and kind of be able to get away from the basketball a little bit. Another story about that with, with the Charlotte Hornets, uh, Del Curry played with, so Steph Curry's dad played with us there and Steph was born the same year as my son and they would be in the locker room together and stuff. So I, you know, when Steph was really good, well, he still is really good, but about five years ago when they were really rolling, you know, my son Daniel would be saying, Oh yeah, there's my buddy Steph, you know? Yeah. You know, we were, we were buds as little kids and stuff. And so, yeah, they didn't, neither one know each other. So, (laughs) but, uh, but yeah, that was, that was kind of fun. I mean, but you know, you know, we don't, I was a lot closer with my college uh, teammates and stuff. And we hung out a lot and played cards together and did and stuff away from basketball. But once I got into the NBA, it was really more of a business. And, um, uh, you know, people used to say, well, you know, do you take your wife and your kids along on trips? And I'm like, no, I mean, it's a, it's a business trip, you know I mean? And, and you're supposed to be there for a job and they expect you to perform at a certain level. So it was definitely was not a, a leisure trip. No. So you mentioned, so Steph Curry, um, still playing. He is, I, I looked this up. He is the current, the highest paid player in the NBA right now with a salary close to $46 million. Um, <laughs> And there's there's others that are, you know, in the 40s as well. But I looked up I looked up in the the 90 91 season. You mentioned Patrick Ewing. He was the highest paid player that year at four point two five million. And I assume I assume for the New York Knicks. I don't know if he ever played for anyone else. Ten times that much stuff makes. Yeah, yeah. And well, he's also, got to, he's got to afford to live in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. So Patrick Ewing, highest paid player in the 1991 season, the average salary in 1991 was about 900,000. And the average salary today is about 8.5 million in the NBA. So I don't know. I didn't look up like 
inflation adjusted numbers, what the inflation adjusted number would be in the early nineties. But I mean, it was, it was a lot of money, but it's, it's just astronomical what it is today. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I mean, that's all, you know, you hear a lot of people complain, you know, and say, well, you know, they're, they're doing it wrong, you know, and and they should respect the fans and, and the fans are one who are paying their salary you know, sorry, the fans aren't paying the salaries. I mean, it's, it's the TV money. You know I mean? The, the ESPN and stuff is just put so much money into the sport. I mean, and obviously the fans coming every night, obviously help support the team. But when you're making $46 million a year, you know, that you'd have to fill up that arena an awful lot of times to be able to pay 46 million to one player. But with that comes a lot of pressure too. You know I mean? Um, the, the bad thing about the NBA and uh, major league baseball, it's really good for the players, but it's bad for the league is that they have guaranteed contracts. You know, once you sign a contract in the NBA, all my, all my contracts are always guaranteed. So whether I got hurt, whether I played bad, whether I played good or whatever, you were going to get, you were going to get the money you signed up for. And same thing with baseball where football, which is probably why it's the number one league is they can cut players. If somebody's not performing, they can cut them tomorrow and bring somebody else new in and they don't have to pay that old guy anything. Now, They'll have some guarantee contracts and stuff, but for most players, they only have a partial guarantee or half a guaranteed or something. And that, that helps the uh, NFL, but it's not as good for the players, obviously. Yeah. And it's, it's been a while since I've looked at this, but I think the average NFL career is something like two seasons or maybe even a little bit less than two seasons. And if you're on a rookie contract, probably 50% or more of the guys that play in the NFL actually don't make a whole lot of money for something that can sustain them for a long time. Yeah. I was going to ask you, so even though your average wasn't $8.4 million a year, Dave, um, what was it like to get that first paycheck? So you're, you know, fresh out of UNL and, you know, you sign with the Hawks, you get that first paycheck, that first big money. Like, what was that like to you? You don't have to, don't, don't tell us what it was, but I mean, we know that it's like a, we, we have an episode over, um, over sudden money and how people like come into money, whether that's like, uh, we, we actually had a, a, a resident psychiatrist on Dr. Justin Romano. And he talked about how, like, when you become an attending your salary, like quintuples, sometimes sextuples from residency to attending. And, and a lot of people come into that money and they just, they lose their mind. They don't know what to do. So what was that like that, that very first paycheck that you're like, holy moly. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of like it's a shock to the system just because we grew up very middle-class. We never went without food or anything, but we also didn't have a lot extra, you know? Uh, So to see that money, uh, that was that was huge. I mean, it was the, the the only bad thing about it was my wife used to complain about this at, at the beginning, but it was really helpful to us. Is is my agent just had the money deposited right into half or I don't know half a portion of it went into my checking account, and but then the rest of it all went into an investment account. So I never actually saw it. I mean, I got to see the little pay stub or whatever, but that's not the same as seeing the actual check. What kind of advice were you given about what to do with your money when, yeah, when the checks started rolling in? I mean, you already said some of it was already going to an investment account. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I had a, a, an agent out of Kansas City and uh, he was very good for us. And like I said, he set us up right away and didn't really, I mean, I guess he did ask us about it and tell us about it, but really basically said, I'm going to take this money and don't you worry about what 
I, I shouldn't say he did, not like we didn't know where it was, but just this is going to go over here. You're not going to be able to really have access to it unless you absolutely need it for a, an emergency. I'm going to give you enough money in your checking account that you guys can live comfortably off of and stuff. Uh, but otherwise, we're going to we're going to go ahead and invest this. And uh, I've still got some of those investments today, and they were they were really good. So it it worked out well for me. Uh, there were a lot of guys that did not have people or helping them out. You got to understand, you're talking about 20 year old kids who are thrown into a situation a long ways from home. They don't know people. They're coming into money where they've never had money before. So to surround themselves with people that are familiar to them and their their cousins and their friends from the neighborhood and everything else is a very natural thing and a very normal thing for them. Now that that you ended up you know having to pay for four people to to eat and to do everything and have extra cars and stuff never really got into their mind a whole lot because they just wanted to be comfortable and they wanted to be around people that they knew. And uh, I mean, it's a, it's a very stressful situation when, you know, when you're, if you're not playing well or something and the fans are on you and the, you know, you're nowadays it's on the internet, but you back then you were reading the newspaper and, you know, and, and, you know, the reporters are saying stuff about you or whatever. And it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough life and stuff. So it's nice to be able to have, somebody that you can come home to and talk to. And, and so that's what those guys had, even though it was not the best for their bank account, you know, it was, it was good for their psyche, but I, I wish they would have some kind of business class, where it still showed you how to write a check and how to pay bills and how to do all that stuff. Because, you know, once you're out of college, all of a sudden it's like, wham, you're just out there in the world and, and you got to, you know, know how to do it here all of a sudden, you know, and how do you pay a mortgage? How do you pay your rent? And, and how do you, you know, do your cable hookup and all these things, you know, and you're just supposed to know those things, you know, and, and, and so that's tough. It's, and then you're a long ways away from home too, you know, you're by yourself and it's a weird life. It really is. It's, it's totally different than anything that I, I have had experienced since then. That, that that's a perspective i i never would have have thought on so thank you for that i mean they you know they they make you go to a a rookie seminar uh where you go and you have like two or three days where they have speakers come up you know but you know to have some x player come up there and say oh you guys got to save your money and everything and those guys aren't listening to that you know i mean uh you know they want to especially for guys that have not ever really had anything, it's very difficult to all of a sudden give them a lot of money and then say, you know, but be frugal with it, guys. Don't don't just go out and buy all the nice clothes and don't buy all the nice cars and everything because it's it's just a difficult thing to do when you've never had it. So a lot of guys want to live in the moment and do it that way. So it's a it's a tough, tough life sometimes. Mm. I mean, um, all of us think, you know, every every single guy that plays – thinks you're going to play for 20 years, you know, and thinks you're going to just keep making money. I mean, nobody ever thinks you're going to get hurt or you're going to get cut or anything. I mean, that's part of being a professional athlete is you have a confidence in yourself and you have a belief in yourself that you're going to be able to do it no matter what anybody says. And so you go that way until it just stops until somebody says, you don't want you to play anymore. That's gotta be devastating. I mean, yeah. you know, cause when you think about it, somebody gives you a hundred thousand dollar check, you know, and that's your money. You think like, I mean, even nowadays, you can go out and buy two, three cars with that. You know, just flat out, here's cash with this. Oh, I got three new cars. Like, all right, wait for my next paycheck. Oh, by the way, you've been cut. Mm -hmm. Oh, shoot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and that reality, yeah. I guess you never think about that. Because like as Ryan, Ryan, I, Ron and I 
<clears throat> when we're not recording, we love to come up with hypothetical situations if we won the lottery or something like what we would do. And, oh, first and foremost, pay off all your debts, then invest a lot of it. And, you know, the, the boring stuff and, and what have you. But, you know, think about that. Like a lottery is a one-time payout, a, a paycheck for being a professional athlete. It seems like it would just keep coming. Do you have any financial mistakes that you'd like to share in your time? We always, we always appreciate when guests can, and you do not have to, Dave, you don't have to. We love it when guests are willing to talk to us about some of their mistakes, be a little bit vulnerable and able to kind of share, I guess, their wisdom and knowledge. Yeah. I don't know if I really have a whole lot of mistakes, uh, but one thing that was different when I, when I told you that I, I started uh, cornerstone with this other guy dale thanks go and we both came into it with a little different attitude uh dale actually his wife he had, had talked and prayed with his wife a lot about it and she was like you can't start this business until we're debt free so you got to pay off the cars pay off our house do everything and my mentality was well hey why would you pay off your house with that you know hundred thousand dollars here why don't you invest that hundred thousand dollars and you can make 10 to 15 to 20% on that. That's a lot more than, you know, the, the how much you're going to pay on your house. So why don't you just tell your wife that you can, you know, financially speaking, this is really not the best idea to do it this way, you know? And he did try <laughs> that conversation with her and she just would not do it and said, the only way, the only way we're going to allow you to do this is if you go ahead and pay off all your debt and we don't have any debt going into this. Now, it ended up being a great situation for him. Uh, I did not do that. And, and we did have a mortgage for, I don't know, the first 10 years or so that we were in the business. And I kept paying down the mortgage. And um, it was just two different, two different angles on it. I don't know if either one was wrong or right, but that was just the way I thought. You know, and one thing that I, I one positive that I, I've told my kids, I've told a lot of our clients too, is, you know, when you, when you get your mortgage, you can get kind of what's called this, um, and I can't remember the name of it, but you can actually pay, you pay the exact same amount, but you just pay it twice. So you pay it once on the fifth, once on the first and once on the 15th. And just that extra payment all the time, even though you're paying the exact same amount, but you're just paying it that two weeks early or whatever, it really knocks down, it can knock, you know, seven to 10 years off of a 30 year mortgage if you do it that way, you know, and a lot of people don't really think of that. And, and sometimes you got to, you know, spend four, 400 bucks or something for your bank or your mortgage lender to be able to set up the program. But then after that, so it's like a bi-monthly mortgage payment or something, but anyways, that's boring finance stuff. That's not boring. I mean, that's why people listen to this show, right? Sure. <laughs> if they're not in it for the finances. They're definitely in it to hear me talk about Ron's bald head. That is pretty much the only other thing that we talk about on this show. Yeah. Yep. So I mark that off your bingo card, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> what is the best financial advice you've ever been given? Hmm. You know, uh, probably, and and it's and it's weird to think of now because. Because you think of Berkshire Hathaway and you think of the Oracle of Omaha and all this stuff. And somebody told me a long, long time ago, and that was like even when I was very first playing in the NBA, you know, buy some stock in Berkshire Hathaway. And I thought, well, you know, is it really, you know, worth it? And I didn't do it until they got to the baby bees, uh, but we did end up buying some and it's it's done fabulously well and you can 
go to the meetings and and hear all the babbling of all you know him and Charlie Munger. And you know, there's other benefits. You you can go to Nebraska French Mart, and usually you, you know if you're if you're a shareholder, you can get twenty to twenty five percent off all their stuff, and it's it's a pretty good deal. So, you know, for especially for people from Omaha, um, if you get a chance, buy some Berkshire stock. Even though there's times where he's he's lost to the market in the overall big scheme of things, he's very very brilliant man. He's basically developed his own mutual fund by just buying up companies. You know, I mean, he just basically is, um, you know, he's a, a guy that thinks outside the box and thinks differently than most of us. So that would be my number one thing would be probably buy some Berkshire if you have a chance. All right, Ron, buy me some Berkshire. <laughs> <laughs> I will buy you a B share. Done. You heard it, Dave. Dave, you heard it. <laughs> yeah, well, and that was one of the reasons I got in, interested in investing was just reading reading the letters that he writes every year and they've gotten a little bit shorter and but man especially if you go back you can go back to the boy the late 60s when when he started writing those and publishing them and you can find them on their website still and there's a there's more than an mba's worth of business education in those letters yeah yeah i don't want to change the subject too much here but i i did want to put my sports talk radio had on for one brief moment and just and just ask about like what was the first big thing you purchased with your MBA salaries that you you know that you might not have ever dreamed you would have purchased otherwise hmm. it was a, a two-door Acura legend that and I didn't do it because I'm too cheap and frugal so I had looked at it a lot and really liked it a lot we were living in Charlotte and um, I'm driving a 1981 Monte Carlo at the time, which, you know, pulling into the the team parking lot was not the coolest car in the parking lot. I can assure you that. So, but I, I really liked this car a lot. And, and my wife was like, well, you know, we've, we've got money, you know, we, you, why don't we go ahead and buy it? And I'm like, no, 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 it's too expensive and stuff. And so woke up on Christmas morning and my wife said, here, come here, you know, open up the front door. And I had the whole the big bow, the big red bow on top of the car sitting out in front. So I technically bought it, even though I didn't really buy it. She had gone through my agent and talked to my agent and everything. I, I probably wouldn't have bought it, but, but no, that was, that was my first, that was my first big splurge. So, and I love the car. So then, and then we had a kid about a year later and the two door car wasn't probably the best idea <laughs> anymore. So, so in we, a car seat. Getting a car seat yeah. in and out of a two-door car. Oh, no, 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 no. Not good. Yeah. Oh, I think it's hard enough with a four-door sedan, more or less a two-door. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, kind of going back to that part of like financial mistake or something like that, you know, you you hit the nail on the head as far as like what we talk about with values, whether to pay your mortgage off early or whether to take that money and and invest it and gain the percentage, like what helps you sleep at night and it seems like your partner that helped him sleep at night. And for you, yeah. it was, Hey, I want to make better gains on, on investment over time. So I, I love that you pointed that out and, and there is no mistake there. There's no, there's just no, I, yeah, that's the thing. It, it's kind of weird. That's why when you said, you know, what's your mistake, I, I don't think either person made a mistake, but, and it worked out good for both of us, you know, but um, you know, it was just a, a principle that he had that, that I didn't really totally adhere to. So I could have lost out too. I mean, we could have had a really bad market for four or five years and, you know, lost money. So, but I was fortunate. So are there any other just kind of 
interesting money behaviors that you noticed while you were playing in the NBA that maybe were surprised by or maybe just wouldn't have expected before you started playing? I don't think I don't think there's probably anything I was surprised by. I think you know, and, and at that time, excuse me, at that time we didn't there was no internet, so you didn't know how much everybody was making. You kind of had an idea. But yeah, to to see the especially with cars. The number of cars guys would have. I mean, we I knew a couple, two different instances where a guy was a single guy and had three cars, you know, and I'm like, how many cars can you drive at one, at one time? You know, I'm like, you can only drive one. But, um, you know, so probably that, just just the, the guys that would, you know, get two or three different cars in a year just because they could or a new model came out and they, they wanted that one and stuff. So, because I had never... Uh, really had any money growing up or anything so it was really weird for me to we never had any new cars we bought everything used so so just to see the amount of money that people would spend on vehicles on automobiles was was pretty astronomical to me I was going to ask you what you thought about Dave Ramsey I always like asking experts in the field like what are their views on Dave Ramsey's take on various things Mm -hmm. Uh, I like Dave Ramsey a lot uh, for about 90% 90% of what he says. He is not a proponent at all of bonds. He really just thinks that you should have, I mean, he kind of will say you can buy real estate and some other things in place of bonds, but he is uh, not a bond person at all. I do believe in bonds, even though this year, uh, so far this year, they've kind of gone contrary to <laughs> to uh, how they're supposed to react in markets. Because there's supposed to be this inverse relationship between stocks and bonds. So when stocks are up, bonds are down, and bonds are up and stocks are down. Uh, This year, both of them are down. But Dave Ramsey just is not a believer at all in that. Now, everything else that he uh, espouses, I am totally behind it, 100%. But um, And and he's really a very conservative guy. um, So I don't, I guess I don't know maybe why he is really against bonds but uh, he just does not like people doesn't want people to hold bonds in their portfolio i think he'd rather him have cash than bonds so i don't know i I, that's just not something that we believe and not not that it's terrible or anything it's just it's just a good hedge to have in your portfolio against you know markets like we're going through right now so you you kind of told about how you started getting into the financial advisory business what else interested you about markets or how else did you yeah become interested in some of the things that you that you're doing today you know back when you when you started this uh i've always loved numbers i just love working with numbers i actually kind of thought i was going to be an accountant and then got into like accounting 201 and 301 it was like this stinks this is this is really hard i don't like this so but uh, yeah i've always just really liked numbers and then part of it was you know working with my agent my agent was a guy that was a, a very wealthy guy that had money from a different source not from being an agent uh, he kind of was doing the the agent business on the side and so he really uh, so in the summer times, I would go and see him and he would talk and we'd sit down. He'd, he'd show me what we had invested and why we had invested it that way. And that little bonus of compounding interest, you know, which that would be one thing that you could tell somebody that was a young investor, you know, first of all, start investing as soon as you can and as much as you can. And then tell them about compounding interest because it's a it's a phenomenal thing that that occurs that, that you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is just be in the market 
actual markets, looking at um, looking at markets, looking at the the Federal Reserve notes and stuff are definitely not a thing that trips my trigger. I really like being able to work with people. So like right now, I'm 58 years old and we started 26 years ago. And at that time when we started, we had a lot of people. So you're, you're mostly, you're the, your peer group is who you're out there trying to talk to and stuff. And so most of the people that, a lot of the people that we have that are clients now are in their mid to upper 50s and stuff. And so a lot of our discussions now are retirement related where, the last 25 years, it's all been about build it up, build it up, build it up. But now we're kind of starting to talk about, okay, what do we need to do to make sure we still have this nest egg here that I built up? And then how do I go with Medicare? How do I go with all these other things that I've got ahead of me on my horizon, you know, my social security and all these different things. So that kind of is, is more exciting to me now is walking a person through that process of, okay, we've got five years left here are the steps of the things we need to do to make sure that when you get to the end of this five years and you say, I'm going to retire, that, that you're ready to go and, and you've got everything in place and, and that you're not, you know, losing sleep at night and stuff. And, and that, that's probably the, the, the thing that probably has bothered me the most sometimes about my business is sometimes I, I don't get the right feel for somebody as far as how much exposure to risk they can take. And when we have something like COVID where it dropped, 40% in, you know, three or four weeks, uh, the market did, or now when it's, you know, when it's down and, it, and things don't look good and we've got inflation, we've got, you know, Russia invading Ukraine, we've got all these, these things pressing down on the market to get calls or to talk to people that are really, really concerned about their money because they're getting close to retirement. And I, I regret sometimes that I have maybe not read them right, or, or in, in my notes, I don't have in there that, I need to probably, you know, get them a little bit more conservative in their portfolio because they're really kind of worried about things. And, and I don't want, that's the last thing we want is our clients being unable to sleep at night or, or having fights with their wife over money or whatever, because, you know, because they're getting close to the end of their working time and, and they don't want to have to keep working. And that would probably be one of my bigger regrets in my business would be ever, if I do that, it doesn't happen very often, but sometimes I do. And that's something I don't like. I mean, you know, when, when the market goes down, you know, you look at your own portfolio or whatever, but I've got 350 clients. So I've got to be like the nursemaid for all of these people because they all want you to put their whole full focus on, on the money they have and stuff. So it's a tough tight wire act to walk sometimes. So, yeah, well, and right now, you know, as we, as we speak, I think that since the beginning of the year, I think the S&P 500 is down about 13%, if that sounds about right, mm -hmm. which real historically that happens on average, like every year, a drawdown like that, give or take. But for some people, this is, this is kind of unprecedented, like, okay, it's gone down and it's not just picking right back up again, like it did a couple of years ago. What kinds of emotions and difficulties are, are people coming to you with right now? Yeah. Well, so I think the, it was awesome for our people's portfolios and portfolio and our business that when COVID hit, you know, we went down 40% and then we ended up 20% up by the end of the year in a lot of our stuff, you know, that was really good for our clients, really good for us, but it's not the way it's supposed to happen. You know I mean? It, it, I mean, it was just a total V-shaped. I mean, it was 
everything that happened at the beginning was all on fear. You know, we're, we're afraid of the coronavirus. We don't know what's going to happen. So what do we do? We're going to sell off all, all our stuff and we're going to go into cash because that's the only safe harbor that's out there. And so that is the thing that is uh, hardest to deal with people is to try to get people to get some perspective of time versus just this last three or four months. Here's what it is. And this is how bad it is right now. But okay, let's add that into the last three years you've got. And so now instead of being down, you know, 12% on the S&P, we're up 40% on the S&P over that same time period, even taking this downturn in the market that we're having for the last three or four months into, we can take that into account and we're still up. But it's, it's hard because everybody is always on what's happening to me today. And one of the things that, that I, I learned a long time ago in our business, like one of our first couple of years, uh, we were... Dale and I were at a seminar, the amount of angst that people have in losing 10% is so much bigger than the amount of joy that they get from gaining 10%. Okay. So if, if at the end of the year, you said uh, you've got a thousand dollars at the end of the year, if you got 900, people are going to be like devastated by that. But if you tell them you got $110, they're like, well, okay. You know, I mean, that's good. But so the amount, so the psychology behind that of Losing the same amount as I could potentially gain causes me so much more angst than than the little bit that I could gain is is a is a weird phenomenon to me. But that's something that you constantly have to be aware of, and that's our biggest thing that we have to constantly work on is trying to make sure we have people allocated properly so that they feel comfortable. It's not good to tell your clients to don't even look at your portfolio because I want them to be able to look at their portfolio. But right now in the internet age, with the ability to look at your account live every day is not necessarily the best for the average investor. I mean, they just don't know what they're looking at all the time and they get too knee-jerk reaction with things and they, they do things that they shouldn't do because you know, they're concerned about what's happening right now. So a lot of times it's best if you just can tell people, you know, look at your account every quarter or whatever, when you get your statement or something, but you don't need to do it a whole lot more than that because that's what you're paying me for. I'm, I'm watching your account. And, and so just to be able to get that, that safety cushion and get, get that trust of people is, is a tough thing. To kind of piggyback off that, Ron, and, and I think I had to have told you this, but one thing that I've learned in the past year because a, a very trusted friend of mine is my financial advisor. He manages all of our family stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we, we would, we would espouse a lot on the show to, you know, try to do it yourself, go into Vanguard, you know, manage your portfolio that way. And I, I still like, I have Vanguard accounts for my kids. Like once they, once their savings account hit a thousand dollars, we're just like, Hey, let's put it into Vanguard, buy some, uh, what is it? ETFs. See again, not the money guy on the show. And Ron actually helped me with all that. And I, I just think to myself, like, if I had to manage that myself, I would go insane. So I'm very happy to pay more money for somebody else like you or my friend Jeremy to manage my stuff. There's something to be said about like, hey, and, and I look at my like gains and I'm like, oh, look at this quarter. It was down. Okay. Jeremy's got my best interest in mind. It's going to go up because that's what happens. And it's nice to remove myself from that. So I like that you say that you're like, hey, this is why you pay me. Well, the va- I, you know, one thing we'll tell a lot of our clients, because the vast majority of our clients are 
professionals, they're engineers, they're, you know, whatever, they're, they're very bright people. They're doctors, there's lawyers, they're everything. They're smart enough to do what I'm doing, but they either don't have time, they have other interests, they want to be able to enjoy doing something else and they don't want to constantly look at this and constantly have to do that. Most of the people are smart enough to be able to do what we're doing. What we're doing is not rocket science necessarily, but but people just want to pay us to be able to have the peace of mind that they don't have to worry about it and they can just let it in our hands. We'll take care of it for them. So that's one thing we did. You know, and, and there's a lot of times where we don't know somebody, we'll get referred by somebody else and they'll bring us a lot of money. And you're like, I can't believe, you know, when they leave, we're like, I can't believe they just gave us $750,000. What if we don't, this is the first time I ever met this person, you know, and they're signing paperwork over to say, yeah, sure. This guy can watch my money for me, you know? And it's like, where does I, where does that trust level come from? It's kind of, kind of crazy, but I think that's where you have to be able to have a personality that can kind of walk, walk down this path with people because that's what people want is just somebody that, is a trusted person that will walk them through everything and explain it to them in their layman terms that they can understand it and that they can they can feel that their money's safe. So it's kind of crazy the amount of money that people will uh, entrust to us, but we're happy for it. So that's good. We have a saying that we stole from the show, The Office, on this podcast, Dave, and it's you know it's much better when people can explain things to us as if we're five years old. <laughs> yeah. so yeah. when you say being able to put it in layman's terms there's a there's a lot to that mm-hmm. hey yeah. you give me money i make you more money yeah perfect yeah. done <laughs> you, the worst thing is is that when you're sitting at, at the conference table with people and you're talking to them and you can just see the deer in the headlights i mean they're just staring straight ahead and you know they have no idea what you're talking about and you ask them, you know, are you with me? You know, or do, you, do you understand everything? I'm yep, yep, yep. But you can tell that they really don't <laughs> don't know, you know. But Dave, did you, uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this. Did you kind of come to a realization as you started managing people's investments that, oh, I need to, I really need to start learning about like human behavior and emotions and that side of things more so than the numbers part of it or yeah, kind of what's the what's the balance there? Maybe, you know, thinking that you are going into it, thinking a lot about the number side and then realizing, oh, it's the the behavior is something I have to maybe even manage more than people's portfolios. Is there kind of like a process? What kind of process did you go through with that? Yeah. So my partner, Dale, was much better at that side of it than I was. And he was not really the best at the number side of it as far as picking investments and and, and, and trying to analyze uh, investments. He didn't really um, love doing that and didn't really like it. But if he could sit down at a table and have a cup of coffee and a, and a Danish with somebody and just talk, he could get so much more information and, and be so good. And I, I would sit in meetings with him and listen to him talking to people. And you just found out, you know, I I'm, I'm not taking notes, but I'm in my head, I'm thinking, oh boy, yeah, that's really good, you know, because you can see, you can get a feel for how people are reacting to your questions or how people are reacting to uh, an account statement that you've just shown them and where that's coming from. My, my new partner, Spencer, would actually, you know, he went to Creighton and they had a couple of, I think it was like 
behavioral finance classes and stuff. And he really, at some point, would like to kind of indoctrinate that into what we're doing a little bit more, more on the, the mental side of it and more on the how are you feeling about this? Really, how are you feeling about this investment or about about how we're working with you versus just, you know, here here's where it's grown from last quarter to this quarter and there's your numbers. And really to the point of not like a psychologist's office necessarily, but maybe not have a conference table, but we're just going to have, you know, some nice chairs sitting out here and we're going to just sit out here and we're going to have a conversation. We're not, you know, really sitting there. Some of our worst meetings have been where somebody wants to meet us and, and go and, and, and go out to eat or something, you know, well, it's the worst to try to be passing stuff over as a waiter's coming over and stuff. We're trying to talk to him about stuff, you know, but yet if you can just keep the paperwork away and let us just have a conversation about what's going on, I don't have to tell you exact numbers about everything, but I just need to know exactly how you're feeling about it. And I'm trying to tell you what we think is going to happen in the market and making sure you understand that and you're you're okay with that but just do it in a in a casual setting and not not so sterile and not so much across the table at each other and stuff and and so that that's something that um that i think he really wants to kind of flesh out a little bit more here in the next year or so and and uh maybe kind of do some of that a little bit experiment with some of his his age clients or something and just kind of start with that and just see how that goes and uh, because, yeah, you know, 26 years ago, I would have thought it was totally all numbers, you know, and I really realized over the years that it's not really as much about numbers as it is about comfort level and about making people feel feel safe and, and uh, that, that they've got somebody they can trust. I wonder if how old, how old is your um, partner, 27, Spencer? 27. What? 27. So I wonder if those behavioral classes that he took from Creighton were taught by Dr. Brad Klons. I don't know. Probably. <laughs> he is a, he, we always like to call him essentially the Michael Jordan of financial psychology. Uh, uh, he's both a certified financial planner and a psychologist. And he, he led the way on a lot of research behind mm. the psychology behind people's finances. And, uh, and he's at Creighton. Yeah. He, he, uh, well, he doesn't teach. He teaches virtually. Um, so he lives in Colorado, but yeah, mm. he teaches some online classes about like behavioral mm. financial stuff like that. And yeah. have you, have you read uh, Morgan Housel's book, the psychology of money? Mm-mm. Oh, I think you'd, you'd find that to be pretty yeah. remarkable. I think Spencer would like it too. Okay. I'll bring it up with him and see what, I don't know. Maybe he has read the book, but I don't know. Well, you're a very comfortable guy to talk to. I mean, this meeting with you as a client has to, has to be, have come, you know, in 26 years, as you said, you know, 26 years ago, it's like, no, this is all about the numbers, but you seem like a pretty relatable guy these days. Yeah. 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 You know, I, well, I, I, I really think, and I, we don't split roles 100%, you know, I mean, 50% I do this and 50% Spencer does this. We have a lot of commingling. He would probably meet more with clients than I do, but we both meet with clients and, and he also does investments for people as, as I do also. But of the, of the two of us, I still like the numbers better than, than the, the, the meeting with people. I, I enjoy meeting with people. It's fine, but I just would rather do the other stuff sometimes. Uh, we joke sometimes when, when the market's really bad and you're getting some rough phone calls, I'm like, this would be a great business if we didn't have any clients to deal with. No. <laughs> but I know no. oh, our phones yeah, are out. Yeah, you know, so I, 
I think definitely, I think we're probably going down that, that path of looking more at the behavioral science behind why, you know, why people want to invest or, or how they feel about their investments and stuff. And, and, in and, and Spencer's, uh, you know, as Aaron will tell you, I, he's a bright young, young man and he'll, you know, if he really wants to do that, he, he'll take it over and he'll, he'll do a good job with it. So nice. Well, I am all out of questions. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I think I do want to hear at least one basketball related story before we're done here. But also, I mean, is there, is there anything else on the, yeah, on the helping manage people's money side of things that you think is important, Dave, or that you'd want to mention to people? I think, I think the biggest thing would be you don't have to have a financial advisor to be able to invest, but if you really want to do it right and you really want to make sure that, you know, you've got good money at the, at the end of the road, you know, look, look into somebody who, who's a good advisor and ask friends. We have never had a seminar. We have never sent out any letters. All our clients have all been either start out as friends or family and or referrals. Referrals are the best clients that you're ever going to have because they've got Joe, Joe over here told me that you're the guy I got to work with. And so I believe Joe. And so I, I trust you. So I think that would be the thing would be, you know, seek out some financial help and, you know, get somebody that um, that's a good advisor and that somebody that you trust is, has been able to, to steer you toward them and, and go with that. So uh, I, here, here's one, one story that I have for you from my time in Philadelphia and my time in Philadelphia, I was only there for about a year and a half, but I could tell you about 500 stories because the, the team was just kind of crazy. Um, uh, so we play with Charles Barkley. Okay. The mount, round mound of rebound. And, um, <laughs> I had been playing in, in Charlotte and, uh, me and another guy, Armin Gilliam, got traded from Charlotte to uh, Philadelphia for Mike Jeminski. Mike Jeminski uh, went to Charlotte. So we got there. We had been there for a couple weeks, but we don't really know the players that well or the coaches or anything. I mean, we're kind of, I mean, because we, we got there in the middle of the season. It's like in the middle of January. So it's not like a training camp where you're, you're getting to work out with guys all the time. You know, I mean, once the new year hits, I mean, practice time goes from about an hour and a half down to about an hour, you know, and then by the end of the year, it's about a half hour, you know, walking through stuff because playing 82 games, you're just beating your body down, you know. So anyway, so we come to practice and we had uh, every day we had practice at St. George University at 11 o'clock. So Charles comes rolling in at about five to 11 and he's got and we had a couple rules. Uh, You had to have you had to have your jersey on. You had to have your shoes tied up for when practice started, or I don't know what would happen if you didn't. But so Charles has taken just like one of the armholes and just put it around his head. So he's just got it hanging on him. And he's got a t-shirt underneath there. And he's got those big Zubas pants. I don't know if you remember those really flowery, you know, uh, <laughs> he's got those on and he, you know, he, so he's over there and we kind of had started practice and, but he's sitting over on the side on an exercise bike and he's, pedaling at once every minute or so, you know, or whatever. And so we had gone through some preliminary drills and stuff, kind of some warm-up stuff. And so um, a coach, Jim Lynham, calls calls everybody over and he says, um, uh, come on over, guys. Let's, you know, talk about what we're going to do today. And so we all come over. We're in a huddle. And Charles is still on the exercise bike. And he says, uh, he, he says, hey, Charles, 
Where are you? What do you got for us here? You gonna are you gonna come out here and, and work with us today? And he said, Jimmy, I can either give you a hundred percent in practice or a hundred percent in the game. It's your choice. And so Jimmy said, Well, I'll take the game. And he said, All right then. And and I mean, people were just laughing and stuff. But I mean, Charles just had the you know he had the guts to be able to say that, and he could get away with it. But now, in his defense, when the lights turned on. He played. I mean, he really, I mean, he did not dog it when he's out there on the floor, but, but yeah, he, he said some things in the locker room and in practice and stuff that were just, I mean, you wouldn't believe him. I mean, he, he came in the locker room one time after a game and he said, he said to the coach, he said, Hey, right here, me and Hersey Hawkins, we're the only two people you need to keep. You can cut all the rest of these people and put it whoever else you want on the team, but you got to keep us too. Yeah, he was just, yeah, he would be the absolute nicest, kindest, greatest guy in the world. And then he would say some stuff that were just like off the wall that you can't even believe. But I'll give you 100% practice of the game. It's your choice. So <laughs> remarkable. You know, it's, it's funny listening to Charles Barkley now that he's old and he's almost, be, he's, he's embraced the joke that is himself. Oh, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. He can laugh at himself. That's yeah. what makes Charles great. Yeah. I mean, they're all, they're all busting on him every night and making fun of him. And he laughs along with them. I mean, that's what, and he's making millions and millions of dollars too. Yeah. He's I laughing mean. all the way, all the way to the bank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, that might be the most, that might be the best, like, I don't watch it a whole lot, but the best sports show going there oh, yeah. inside the NBA with the shacks on there. I can't remember everyone else, but. Well, yeah, Kenny, Kenny, the Jet Smith, and and uh, but I mean the the guy who is doing the commentary or whatever, or you know doing the questions, he doesn't even hardly say anything. He just like asks one question or something, and then they just go back and forth, and and you know, yeah. great gig if you can get it. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, oh, I boy. that's that's all I have. All right. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. I had a good time. And Dave, thank you so much. This this is sure. this has been an absolutely awesome conversation i i really appreciate your time really appreciate the candor and uh and and your expertise and insight so thank you so much for that so well yeah and thank you listener for tuning into money in the mind where we teach you to manage your money and not let it manage you everybody get up it's time to slam now we got a real jam going down welcome to the space jam here's your chance do your dance at the space jam all right, all right.